happens to be here. Anytime you can get an invitation to leave Texas and come to California, it is really a joy. A joy. I tell you, uh, the Lord has blessed this state with um, loads and loads of resources on it. I, I remember there was a time when the Californians were just like, we are so great, the country is great, you know, and stuff like that. Uh, and now it's Texas is trying to do that. So it's a, it's a blessing to come here. I was going to come across this morning uh, that there's actually more good towards the church for others on that from the scriptures. And we're going to talk about this right now in the year of adaptability because after talking to numerous people before church this morning, um, you guys are fairly well educated in terms of creation science. So let's do something today, do something cool that will fundamentally change the way you see creatures from this day forward. I want you to see creatures as they really are, active, problem-solving entities that the Lord has fully engineered to be adaptable and to fill this earth just like He commanded it right at the beginning of time. And so I think you'll see some things that you have never heard before and it'll hopefully change your view about, uh, about creatures altogether. Now there's a quote here from a man named Paul Nelson. He's a creationist as well. I wish I would have said it. But his words are perfect. We need to do biology as if Darwin had not been born. I think he said never been born. <laughs> but I think he had not been born on all those things. And in order to do that, we go right back to the scriptures in Romans chapter 1. It says this, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. Now here you have this verse. Because if God has shown them to them from the invisible things of him, from the creation of the world, are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Now the word made is really important. It's used only one other time, the Greek word for that, in the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, where it says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. So really what Paul is saying is, is when you look at creatures, when you look at creatures, you should see evidence of workmanship. That's pointing to evidence of design. That's pointing towards evidence of engineering. So I have a little slide adventure in my hand right here. Does this show evidence of workmanship? Yes, it does. And what you see here, even though you may not be able to visualize it, it has multiple parts working together for a what? Purpose. Purpose. Evolutionists really hate that word purpose. And when you look at me, do you see multiple, phenomenal, cool, great parts working together for a purpose? And the answer is yes. Good. Thank you for that. At least humoring me for a second. Those of you who didn't say yes, big trouble. Multiple parts working together for a purpose. And the interesting thing is that they work together for the same purposes as human engineered things do. If we had time, we could take a whole week and I could show you corresponding features in a human designed thing that you can find in God designed things. They're doing the same thing, they're operating by the same engineering principles. The only difference is, is the God designed things do it much, much better. And that isn't to minimize the human engineered things, which are great works of human engineering. It just shows that the works of human engineering of the Lord Jesus, the works of engineering of the Lord Jesus, are just so much better. And so in terms of Romans 1, general revelation, this is the main point. The engineered workmanship, seeing and living 
creatures that engineered workmanship, sea living creatures, that corresponds, that's the key word, it corresponds to the engineered workmanship and man-made things is the primary and undeniable revelation of Christ's power, genius, and wisdom. All of those things. And it's also hard to deny it. When living things are operating by the exact same engineering principles as man-made things, it is really, really hard for a person who's honest to say that it also wasn't engineered. Now, let's explain a few things. All living creatures have four main functions. Anything that is alive must grow. Anything that's alive must metabolize. That means it takes in energy and gets in food, converts it to energy and building blocks and things like that. They all reproduce and they all adapt. In order for something to be alive, it does these things, and evolutionary theory must explain those. But in terms of creation and evolution, by far the most important one of those functions is the ability for creatures to adapt. In other words, change. So let me ask you this. If creatures could not change, if they were static, as static as the seat that you're sitting on, they could not change, could a theory of evolution ever get going? No. It is because creatures can change. It's because they can adapt. But you can extrapolate that far beyond what they are able to do and imagine that they could evolve into the diversity of life on Earth. So whoever controls this explanation of adaptation is really controlling the name of the game of creation and evolution. Now tonight, and I encourage you to come back, we are going to explain why the evolutionary mechanism of random mutation coupled to natural selection misleads people and points them right towards atheism. But I'm going to offer you this morning an alternative explanation for adaptation, which is not mutation and natural selection. It is an organism focus. That's a key word. This is Sunday school class if you're taking notes. It is organism focus and it is design based. And it explains organisms as if they are able to track the environment over time with the exact same elements as a human tracking system. And in fact, they do it far, far better. So on the left-hand side of the screen up there, you see a car. There's nobody in it. It's an autonomous car. It has sensors, and if you put enough fuel in it, it could drive from New York City San Francisco, it could drive around storms, it could drive around traffic jams, it could make its way there because it has a load of sensors, sensors, and that information is fed to computers, which then guide the car. Does that make sense? You have to know what's happening. So what are those things? Sensors, computers, output, or sensors, logic. This logically says, if there's a storm, then go around it. Does that make sense? And then the car can do it. Creatures use the exact same mechanism. You have your body, not than just your eyes and your ears, your body is loaded with millions upon millions of sensors, sensing all different kinds of things around you. And that sends information into your body, which is the logic. And when it says, if this, then that, and it can adjust accordingly. 
quite remarkably in many ways, and you can respond, and you can do it very, very quickly. In fact, so on the left-hand side of the screen is this autonomous car. On the right-hand side of the screen, you see a picture that says, guinea pigs beat what? Climate change. By doing what? Tweaking their own DNA. And when was the last time you heard that you could tweak your own DNA? You haven't. But scientists have known this for a long time. So everybody's worried about climate change. So this is the experiment. They took these male guinea pigs, five male guinea pigs, and they put them in a cage with a heating pad at the bottom of the cage. And you already heard this. Some of you heard this. You want to count. Now, if you know anything about male guinea pig anatomy, what's on the heating pad? That's right. It's right there on the heating pad. And so they, they put those guinea pigs for one cycle of the development of sperm. It takes about 70 days. Get all the old sperm out and make brand new ones that have been developing in this hot climate. They mated these male guinea pigs with females that were not exposed to the hot environment. She had pups, and they were able to analyze dad and the pups. And in one generation, there were multiple, a minimum of 18 genetic changes, all related to traits to thermal regulation. Wow, we should, we should, we should say, wow. That's, 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 wow. That's pretty cool. How do they do that? There's sensors. What kind of sensors in this case? What kind of sensors? Heat sensors, temperature sensors. And then there's information that goes in, and there's an output response which can change development of sperm in one generation. Now, that is quite remarkable. You probably haven't heard that in Sunday school before. Or probably not. So, how does it happen? Well, just like a human tracking system there on the left, as a sensor that can track the sun, goes to computers and outputs the little motors, your body has sensors all over the outside of its cells. I can sense everything from heat and vibration, pressure, and all those things. Information is sent to the cells, and you can rapidly respond. You can also pass the information that we just saw on the offspring. And as I read the best scientific literature out there today, I am not hearing anything about random mutation so much in terms of real adaptation. I am hearing adaptation described with these words, highly regulated, rapid, repeatable, sometimes even reversible, and with targeted solutions. Those are characteristics of design, design things. And so you have to know the evolutionary backstory of how we can go from something that looks so incredibly designed to explaining it as if it wasn't designed. In other words, how is it that the engineered workmanship that's seen in all these creatures, which evolutionists eat and see themselves. How do these selectionists, or in other words, evolutionists, deal with the fact that they can see corresponding features in creatures that match human-engineered things? How in the world do they do this? Well, the first thing we need to remember is that Darwin's purpose was not to explain the evolution of life, or not even to explain the diversity of life. Here's another important note-taking thing. Darwin's purpose for developing this theory was to explain the design of life. He wants to explain why creatures 
often work so incredibly designed and why they fit their environments so perfectly well without appealing to a designer. And this man on the screen, Francis Ayala, he was the head of the American Academies for the Advancement of Science. He published his paper in one of the leading scientific journals, Design Without a Designer. This was Darwin's key to his key score in many, many ways. This gentleman here was another evolutionary theorist, the famous Stephen Jay Gould, probably the leading one until he passed away. He asked two important questions. What is the motor or the organic chain? How do creatures change? We need to know that. Or more specifically, how are life and the earth related? In other words, you relate to your environment. You're relating to me right now. You're relating to everything around you. You're changing. Right now, you're changing. <clears throat> How does that happen? As he asked the question, does the external environment and its alterations set the course of change, or does change arise from some independent and internal dynamic from the organisms themselves? In other words, does the environment change you to match it, or do you change yourself to match it? That's a really important question. And Darwin really came up with a way to bring in the idea that the environment was changing creatures, and it is fundamentally externalistic and anti-design. And Stephen Jay Gould goes on and explains this. I proceed in this way for a very principal reason and not merely as convenience. All major evolutionary theories before Darwin are presenting a fundamentally internalist account based upon intrinsic and predictable patterns set by the nature of living systems for the development and unfolding through time. So in other words, he's saying, before Darwin, there were people who thought organisms evolved. There were people who thought organisms changed. But what they were doing is they were looking into the inside of the creature to explain these changes. They were looking at what the creature could do itself. Now, the problem with that is that when you look inside the creature, it sounds like it was designed to adapt. And if your idea is to explain design without a designer, you don't want to look inside the creature. So Gould said this, Darwin's theory, this is so important. In fact, we haven't even been teaching this as creationists, but it's very important. Darwin's theory, in strong and revolutionary contrast, presents the first externalist account of evolution. Darwin overturned all previous traditions by thus granting the external environment a causal and controlling role in the direction of evolutionary change. So he went from looking inside of creatures to outside of creatures. Most creationists don't even know that. Most evolutionists don't even know that. But what he was doing is he was changing the cause of change from inside to outside. And his friend, Richard Lawson, who just passed away himself a few years ago, said for Darwin, the external world, the environment acting on organisms was the cause of the form of organism. The environment, the external world with its autonomous properties was the subject and the organism was again the object acted upon. So creatures become very, very passive. 
your Darwin view. And, and Lamarck goes on to say it's this. It is from this view of environment as the cause of organism that the entire corpus of modern biology arises. Now, how can the environment be the cause of organism? Did you think about that? Well, in the evolutionary worldview, life did not exist on this planet at one time, and somehow, in their view, without any action of God, without any intervention of God whatsoever, the environment all by itself came up with the right conditions, the right set of chemicals, the right features, and the environment gives what? Life. The environment gives life. And then, the environment acting on, working on, favoring, selecting all of these different organisms over time, the environment presents challenges, the environment favors some, the environment selects some, the environment rejects some, the environment leads to the diversity of life. So in this view, the environment gives life, the environment diversifies life, the environment in essence creates all of life, and what becomes the substitute designer instead of God, the environment? Or you could call it nature. Nature. And that takes you right back to Romans chapter 1, verse 25. Because that passage says, after they denied God's creator, and it says, they changed the truth of God for a lie. Literally in the Greek it says, they exchanged. They exchanged the true for the false. The true what? The true God for the false God and worship and serve the creation more than the creator. Now, does that sound religious? Paul says, Paul says that they exchange the true God for the false, and then he uses two liturgical words. They worship and serve. Have you met anybody that honors and worships nature? Is that increasing in our society? It is. And this is how it happened. And Darwin was ushering it in. He went from looking to what the Lord had built into creatures to enable them to change, to seeing them as basically modeling clay shaped by the environment. And that's why Lewontin says this. We cannot fully appreciate the nature of change in biology brought by Mendel and Darwin unless we understand the historical objectification of the organism. And I can guarantee you that every school, public school, from high school to college in this state teaches that the environment acts on, works on, shapes organisms. It is this externalistic view of biology. An externalist, Gould says, identifies the agent of change not within organisms themselves, but in a fluctuating external environment. And two other major researchers, one at UC Berkeley here in California, in this book in 2005, said he, that they were speaking of Darwin there, Darwin accepted the view that the environment directly instructs the organism how to vary. He proposed a mechanism for inheriting those changes. But stop right there. Does that even make sense? Can the environment instruct you how to vary? Oh, that's a 
magic? How is the environment sending you instructions? Where are the instructions sending And where is your instruction receiver? And how does that actually change your genes? How would that actually change you? Nobody asks these kinds of penetrating questions. They just accept it. The environment changed you. How would it have been possible to do that? How can the environment get in and make those changes? It can't. And so they conclude that the organism in Darwin's world was like modeling clay, and the modeling claim meant that each of the billions of the little brains was free to move a little bit in any direction. So it is organisms which are now modeling clay, and they are being modeled by what? Nature. Nature. And so nature is molding it. And suddenly you go from a design-based view to this. Helena Cronin, one of the world's leading evolutionists in Great Britain, says, all of this apparent design, apparent design has come about with no designer, no purpose, no goals, no blueprints. Natural selection is simply about genes replicating themselves down through the generations. You come to a completely random, purposeless, chaotic view of how organisms came into being, and that doesn't sound like they were created. That sounds an awful lot like evolution. Boom. You've just moved the masses of people to where you want them to be. And that's the fundamental change. So, I'm going to switch this. Let's go to reality. Let's go to reality. That is all the background. That is very important. You needed to know how evolutionary uh, biologists see you. You need to know how they think about it. You need to know what they're teaching in school, what they're teaching in colleges. But that isn't true. If, we, if Darwin went from looking inside of the creatures to seeing the environment as molding them from the outside, if we wanted to do biology without, Bar without Darwin, where would we go to look? Back inside the creatures. That makes sense. In fact, I have my little computer up here on this stand. Everything that this computer is ever going to be able to do was built into the computer. Does that make sense? It had to be built into the computer. It was put into the computer. Even if this computer can get outside information and do things, it's because the designers put that capability right here in the beginning. So, we're going to look at some of these changes of these creatures that you see on the screen and how they change, and we're going to explain it from an organism-focused, engineering-based program as if they were continuously tracking their environment, or continuous environmental tracking. And we're going to look at the sensors that they have, the conditional logic that they have, and suitable responses. So, if with those sensors they detected similar conditions, and if they were programmed by the Lord Jesus to have the same innate programming, then you can detect similar responses. So here's one. Caves. A cave. This is a pretty challenging environment to live in a cave, wouldn't you say? So fish sometimes can get trapped inside a cave. And what if they were programmed over time that when they were trapped in the caves that they could lose their eyes or that they could adjust their pigmentation, their circadian rhythms, and they could augment other traits, such as their wakefulness. In other words, all of their other senses that live in a cave. Guess what? That's exactly what 
some of the surface fish get swept in the cave of various types, and usually very, very quickly, eyes degenerate. There's changes in their circadian rhythms. Their ability to sense vibrations in the water increases. Their smell ability increases. Their schooling ability changes. Their, 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 the ability of, uh, of how they feed and eat completely changes. And, all, and it can do it within months. And not only can fish do that on the screen, but up on the right-hand side of the screen, there are the, the sided fish and cave fish. We'll talk about those in church service a little bit. But so can salamanders, insects, crustaceans, spiders, all different kinds of creatures. When they get trapped in a cave for one reason or another, they have all of these changes, sight regressors, and other traits of them. And they do it quickly. Hmm. It sounds like they were engineered to have solutions to problems of even living in caves right from the very beginning. And right in the book of Genesis in chapter 1, the Lord told creatures to be fruitful, multiply, and do what? Fill the earth. Would that have included caves? Yes. He made them with the ability to move and to live in caves, and he gave them this ability not to survive, but to even thrive. Now, is this kind of like taking your brain and saying, you're telling me stuff which is so radically different from what I learned in school. You're not telling me about mutation. You're not telling me about broken stuff. You're not telling me about struggles to survive and one dominating over the other and slowly losing your eyes. You're telling me that these creatures were pre-engineered in advance with abilities to express a multitude of changes that enable them to live in a cave. Yes. That should radically change your view. I'm not just saying that mutation and selection is limited and can't do what Darwin was saying. I'm saying mutation and selection is misleading and is fundamentally wrong. And what you need to see is that these creatures have innate abilities that were pre-engineered from the beginning of creation to do what the Lord commanded them to do, which was to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Now that is radically different. Radically different. Here's another example. What country is this? Australia. Yeah, Australia, mate. So... There's these poisonous snakes. In fact, most everything in Australia is kind of like poisonous. It's like a, I mean, if you really wanted to send people to a penal colony, Australia would get on that. It's like a death sentence there. So they have these tiger snakes. They live in Australia, and they live in the southern part of Australia. And some of them have somehow been washed out to sea and migrated to islands. And they have populated islands, and that's what you see on the picture there. Islands off the coast of Australia. In most of these snakes, when they get on the islands, within a few generations, they go to a dwarf form of the snake. One half to two-thirds the size of the snake that's on the mainland. On a couple of the islands, they've gone to a giant form. Much, much bigger than the one on the mainland. But what's interesting is if you check the DNA between all three populations, 
They're essentially genetically identical. Identical. And most creatures, when they get trapped on an island, in some way go to a dwarf form. In fact, there were island elephants, dwarf elements, called insular dwarfism. There were chameleons, even dinosaurs. And that elephant that I was pointing out there, those are found in, they were found originally in Sicily, these trapped elephants, and at full height, they're at my waist. That's a dwarf elephant. That's a dwarf. And they were able to do this. This is quite remarkable. Here's another one where organisms can track their changes. How many of you see the brown beetle on the left and the ant on the right in that picture? Brown beetle and ant. But that is not an ant on the right. That is the beetle. And when this beetle, which is normally prey for army ants, they live in South America, some of these beetles, when they detect the army ants, they morph in shape to look like an army ant. Wow. That's quite remarkable. They can morph to look like an army ant. In fact, here's what they look like. Up on the screen there, you can see there's the army ants and the beetle. Army ants and the beetle and all of those things. Here's a close-up of one. The army ant is on the left and the beetle is right there in the center of the screen. Does that look an awful lot like an army ant? And what's interesting is not only do they look like the army ants, they behave like army ants, they even smell like army ants, so much so that the army ants let these beetles come into their nest and take care of their young. But they're not that benevolent. It's like two for you, one for me. And so now the army ant eats the, the, these, the this beetle, these army ants. And they, can, they have the ability to morph into the shape of at least nine different army ants, depending on which army ant they find themselves surrounded by. Now that is really changed. They have a sensor. They have a what kind of sensor? An army ant sensor. Whatever they're detecting about the army ants. And they have internal programming. Would you say they have internal programming? And they have an output response. That's quite remarkable. And this is what the paper says about this. It says they propose that the beetles are poised, quote, poised for mimetophily, that means they look like an ant. And that this near clade-wide pre-adaptive ground plan may underlie the repeated ant mimicry. Now wait. Look at those key words. Poised to look like an ant. Does that sound like random changes? And what else did they say that doesn't sound very evolutionary to us? A pre-adaptive ground plan. Is evolution supposed to have any of that? No. This paper went on to say this. This discovery published on March 9th in Current Biology provides evidence that evolution, well, they give the credit to evolution, has the capacity to repeat itself in astonishingly predictable ways. Was evolution ever supposed to be predictable? No. Hmm. That's quite interesting. Here's another creature. This is called a stick spider, and this was found in Hawaii. And there's a gold form that lives on leaves, there's a brown form that lives on tree trunks, and there's a white form that lives on lichen. And they found that like if this gold form went from one Hawaiian island to another, it could change into the brown and white forms as necessary before the brown and white forms from this island ever got to that island. Hmm. That's quite quick. The researchers, in this case it was a gal who did the research, she said this. We don't usually expect evolution to be predictable. 
predictable, no doubt. It wasn't supposed to be predictable. It was supposed to be, what was the key word? Random. But in Hawaiian, six spiders and their randomness genus have repeatedly evolved the same distinctive form known as ephemorphs on different islands. She goes on to say, the spiders, quote, arrive on an island and boom, you get independent evolution to the same set of forms, a sort of rapid and repeated evolution. Now, was evolution ever supposed to go boom? No. It was so supposed to be what? Very, very what? Slow. Very, very gradual. For a really, really long time. And now they find out it goes boom. Wow. Hmm. She said this. We can ask whether there might be an underlying mechanism that leads to the similar patterns of predictably repeated evolution in the course of adaptive radiation. Yeah, I'd say we should ask that. That'd be a great question. That the Aramis spiders, she said, have some sort of pre-programmed switch in their DNA that can be quickly turned on to allow them to evolve rapidly in these successive forms. But how that process might work is still unclear. Hmm. Are you here in terms of engineering here? Pre-programmed what? Switches. You know how she should look? She should look to a human tracking system, which has three main things. They are what? This is this is Sunday school. This is Sunday school here. This they're supposed to have sensors, right? And then they're supposed to have innate logic, and they're supposed to have output responses. If I was a researcher studying these spiders, I'd look for a what? Sensor, study for logic, and look for an output response. Hmm. Here's an interesting one. These lizards, this was an interesting experiment. There was a river, this is in Brazil, and you can see in the little map there, they put a dam. And when they built the dam, they flooded that area. And they trapped lizards on those independent islands. What a cool experiment. You had all the lizards on the mainland, they got flooded trapping some of them on islands. And you used to have some big lizards and small lizards, and the big lizards used to be able to eat the termites. But small lizards couldn't, they just couldn't get the termites because the big lizards ate them first. But what's interesting is, when they got trapped on the islands and traversed it for some reason, the big lizards went extinct. Now the little lizards could eat the termites. The trouble is they had a little head and the termites were big. Well, in a period of at least 15 years or less, the head on the little termites got big compared to their body. In fact, they got so big compared to their body that you had head-to-body length comparison on the right, which is the island, which was completely distinct from what they used to be like when they were living on the mainland. They got a big head-to-body length, so distinct. And these researchers said this, that this was strong evidence that the traits could predictably and precisely in ecological communities respond both rapidly and in parallel to ecological changes. In other words, the head-to-body length on all of those islands that those lizards got trapped on adjusted proportionally on all the islands. Hmm. Does that sound like it's random? Or could there maybe be a pre-programmed switch in this? That's what it is. Here's another man, Jonathan Rosos. He's a world 
research around these type of lizards, these are known lizards. He does some really, really good work. The Sunday school lizard, the quarter after. Okay, so we, we can finish off Jonathan Losos here in one other example. Wow, he did some really cool research. He, he suffers for science down in the Caribbean. And um, he, he found that on some of these islands that had tall trees, that the lizards have long legs. That they have longer legs and they could scramble up and down the trees. And some of these islands in the Caribbean, which are populated with small scrub grass, like bushy grass, that the lizards that lived on those had short little legs. Well, a hurricane came through and wiped out all of the lizards on seven islands. And all seven islands had scrub brush for vegetation. So you have a clean slate. He went to the island where they had the big tall trees, and he got lizards off of the trees, and he repopulated the seven islands with lizards that had long legs. Now, isn't that kind of a cool experiment? And he wanted to see what would happen. And he says this, Our prediction was that they would evolve shorter legs. And they did. Over the course of four million years, average limb length over the course of four years, average limb length steadily declined on all seven islands, exactly as predicted. All seven islands were evolving in lockstep. Now, he sees it as evolution. I see it as what? Built-in abilities that these creatures have to live on the islands where they have sensors. And they have sensors in their, as they develop, and this is an inner struggle to survive. The same gentleman did an experiment where he took eggs from 120, he had 120 different of these lizard eggs, he divided them up randomly into different tanks, and some of those lizards grew up where they had a dowel rod to walk on, a short little dowel rod, and some of those lizards grew up in tanks where they had a big wide board in the tank to walk on. And by the time they went from an egg and they hatched, and they grew up to maturity either walking on a dowel rod or a board, the ones that grew up on dowel rods had what kind of legs? And the ones that walked on boards, long. That quick. Your body has sensors, even on the stresses, enabling you to change things as you develop. Now that is really, really cool. On that. This gentleman does uh, research on snakes, pythons, and boas. This is cool. You have pythons and boas that live in trees, or live under the ground, or live in water. And end up looking very similar to each other. A python looks more like a boa in the tree than it looks like another python on the ground. They're able to rapidly adjust to this. This researcher here, Opie Hoekstra from Harvard, world's leading researcher on mice, she found that if you take mice from the central area and you move them to forests on either the east coast or the west coast, that they start to live in trees. I've never seen mice living in trees myself. But they live in trees, but what's the key thing is up on the screen, there's x-rays of their tails. So you have prairie-dwelling mice on either the east or the west, and they have short tails, but from the same ancestor, once they move into living in trees, they develop a long tail. I don't know what the long tail does, but it's longer. And she said this, from a short-tailed prairie-dwelling ancestor, say that real fast, short-tailed prairie-dwelling ancestor, for geographically distinct populations across North America, longer tail 
have evolved repeatedly in similar forms and habitat. Variation in these traits is controlled by separate genetic loci. It means this. It's completely different genes because these cells on these mice get longer by not only increasing the length of their vertebra, they even increase the number of their vertebra in their tail. So the vertebra number and the vertebra length increase controlled by completely separate genes. And they do it predictably and repeatedly wherever they go. And she says this suggests it is not a stochastic, that is, random process, but implicates similar mechanisms of tail elongation in eastern and western populations. Wow. That happens repeatedly. Here's our final example. This was research done on a bacteria that live in your gut called E. coli. And they had some of these bacteria which were genetically identical, at least at the beginning, and they exposed them, they put them in separate populations, and they exposed them to the same conditions, same challenging conditions. And guess what? They had the same genetic changes, and that's why the paper says predictable evolution trumps randomness and mutation. And they say this, although mutations, the driver of evolution, occur at random. Stop right there. How many of you have heard that? Mutations occur at random. Mutations are the driver of evolution. Mutations occur at random. You know what that is? That is not an observation. That is a dogma. It's a dogma. And you go through high school and you go through college and you, you learn it. It's almost like mutations occur at random. And you repeat it over and over and over again. And that gets drilled into your brain. But what is their test for randomness if they don't have one? It is an article of faith. It is something that they believe. And sometimes they believe it so strongly, even in the face of contrary evidence. So it says, although mutations and dry revolution occur random, a study of the bacteria E. coli reveals, oh, here's a personification, that nature often finds the same solution. Stop right there. Remember, I told you that Darwin went from looking into the creatures to looking at what? Nature. And that nature is the giver of life, nature is the changer of life, nature acts like a substitute God. And in all scientific papers, this is the leading scientific journal in the world, and you just ran across a causality of nature being personified. How is it personified? It's a Sunday school question. Read that quote and tell me how it's personified. Nature often finds the solution. Does that sound like nature can think and act? That's it. Nature found it. Nature found it. You know what? They're not even looking in the bacteria. Nature found the solution. So you have this random stuff, which is dogma, and you have the personification of nature in lieu of God, so now nature's finding these solutions. Well, anyway, this is what they really found is that identical genetic changes appeared independently in the test tubes. In other words, these populations exposed to the same challenge, bang, same changes, same changes, same changes. Not random. Now this should radically change your thinking. And this should have been an hour or 45 minutes in Sunday school, well worth your time. Because you now see biology in a completely different way. 
see adaptation in a completely different way. And this is what I'd like you to change in your thinking. One, no longer seeing organisms as passive, modeling play being shaped by nature or the environment. Don't see them that way. That's how Darwin wants you to see them. It's passive, modeling play being shaped by the environment. But begin to see creatures as this. Active, problem-solving entities which can detect challenges, solve the challenges, and fill the earth. That is radically different. So let's review that again. No longer see creatures as what? Passive, modern clay, being shaped by the environment. No longer see them as that. That's how Darwin wants you to see them. But see them as what? Not they're not passive, they are active, problem-solving entities which can detect the challenges, solve the challenges, and fill the earth. That is a completely different way. That's how they were really made. And that brings honor to the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.